Welcome to episode three of the That's All Right podcast. I'm your host, Dr. TJ Stewart. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Adrian Huerta and Romeo Jackson about writing from a critical perspective, challenges, opportunities, and what keeps us going. Before we jump into the episode, a few reminders. I am developing and producing this limited series as a service in kind to ACPA's Virtual Writers Retreat. Any questions, concerns, or comments about the episodes can be sent to me at terraj at gmail.com. That's T-E-R-A-H-J-A-Y at gmail.com. I'm always happy to hear from listeners. Also, the views expressed by individuals are always their own. And on this podcast, we welcome critical, radical, and justice-based perspectives. This particular episode, I think, is full of great wisdom some honest and frank real talk, and boundary-pushing perspectives that I hope you enjoy. Before we get into the episode, let me tell you a little bit about my guests. Uh, Dr. Adrian Huerta, he, him, is an assistant professor of education at the Puglia Center for Higher Education at the University of Southern California. He uses qualitative methods and asset-based theories to study boys and men of color, college access and inequity, and gang-associated individuals. His scholarship appears in Boyhood Studies, Education in Urban Society, Teachers College Record, Urban Education, Urban Review, and other social science journals. He earned his PhD in Education from UCLA and is a past recipient of the AERA Minority Dissertation Fellowship. Romeo Jackson, they, them, is a feminist dedicated to intersectional justice and cross-movement building and currently serves as a political education coordinator for the Black Youth Project 100. Their research, writing, and practice explores racism, anti-Blackness, and settler colonialism within a higher education context with an emphasis on the experiences of queer and trans students of color. Romeo is committed to uplifting and empowering queer and trans people of color through a Black queer feminist lens. Romeo holds a BA in Liberal Arts and Sciences, emphasis in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, Certificate in LGBT Studies from Northern Illinois University, an MED in Educational Leadership and Policy with an emphasis in Student Affairs Administration, and a Certificate in Community College Leadership from the University of Utah, and is currently a PhD student at Colorado State University in the Higher Education Leadership Program. I am so thrilled for you all to bear witness to this conversation. Uh, It is incredible. I hope that you agree. And with that, let's not waste another second. All right, so with that, we will go ahead and get started. I'm really excited uh, for episode, this will be three, of the That's All Right podcast. And uh, today's topic is writing from a critical perspective, challenges, opportunities, and what keeps us going. And I'm super excited to have this conversation with uh, two folks that I admire uh, and have really come to enjoy. And they are Romeo Jackson and Adrian Huerta. And so we will get started with having uh, them just introduce themselves and whatever you'd like to share, maybe a little bit about the research that you do, um, since we're talking about writing from a critical perspective or the research that you're interested in. And then we will jump right into the questions. And so uh, for ease of facilitation, I'll pick on one of you. How about that? So Romeo, how do you feel about going first and introducing yourself? Yeah, go first. Um, Hi, Romeo Jackson. My pronouns are they and them. Um, And so about a week ago, I was assistant director for social justice at the the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Um, Currently, I'm working as the political education coordinator with Black Youth Project 100. Um, as well as being a PhD student in my second year, finally, at Colorado State University. Um, Yes, I started a program doing Rona. Yes, it was a lot. (laughs) Um, Research, um, (laughs) that's funny. Let's see, what I have published so far, maybe I'll start there, because what it will be, who knows. But um, there's a trio of papers that I've worked on with Antonio Duran and Alexi Lang around um, observations of the current state of LGBT research in higher education. We've looked at the engagement of critical and post-structural frameworks. Fun fact, there isn't many (laughs) who engage (laughs) in those frameworks uh, who do LGBT research. And one that was just accepted in the Journal of Social Change in Higher Education or something like that. 
is yes. around the engagement of race and racism in LGBTQ research. Spoiler alert, it's whack. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so, so, so a bucket of it is like current state stuff. I also have some writings around pedagogy, particularly the use of critical and post-structural frameworks as a pedagogical tool in the classroom. And what I'm thinking about now for dissertation research is around the politics of kind of deaf, dying, and disabling for Black trans students in higher education and how institutional cultures literally produce death and disabling of Black trans students um, through, their, through the very ways they're organized, right? So not individuals doing things, but like, no, the very systems and structures themselves yep. produce this outcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I think that's highly highlights, yeah. That's awesome. Thanks for that. So the audience couldn't see, but I'm over here doing all the snaps. Uh, and congratulations on joining BYP. I was really excited to to see that for you. And they are lucky to have you. Uh, so I hope that that is a, a fruitful, fruitful experience for you. And next, Dr. Adrian Huerta, why don't you introduce yourself, my friend? All right, thank you so much. Um, and full disclosure, I always get nervous for doing stuff like this. So my heart always pounds really hard. So good morning, good afternoon. Thank you so much for this chance to, to be with y'all. Um, my name is Adrian Huerta. I just wrapped up the second year of the tenure track at USC um, at the University of Southern California, Polia Center for Higher Ed. Um, this is where I study boys and men of color, college access in, in, and inequities and gang associated individuals. Um, so that's really where my my work falls in the intersection of, of those three buckets to try to see what what's going well or or wrong in K through 12, what we're doing wrong or right in higher ed, and how we can fix those things to really create a pathway for for people to thrive in higher ed, to graduate from higher ed, and to hopefully we can change some practices that are often embedded and really deficit beliefs on different stigma, uh, different populations have been stigmatized for various reasons. So currently I'm wrapping up a project looking at men of color programs and how they work, why they, why they work really well and sometimes they don't from a structural perspective, um, interviewing former gang members to understand how they got into higher ed. And I'm also wrapping up a project looking at student parents and what happened you know, we we talked to them pre-COVID and then, you know, last fall or fall 2020 about how they're surviving in COVID or in higher ed or not because of COVID and how that's impacted their persistence and also their attrition from higher ed. Mm. So that's, the, yeah, that that's kind of where my work falls in and how I try to make sense of it. Awesome. Thank you so much, uh, Adrian. And as the audience will now see, this is why I picked these individuals, because the work is fire and very important. And, and, I, and I think, and you know, and this is not about me, I am the host, but I will just say, because it also mirrors my own work, right? Particularly when we're talking about stigma, when we're talking about death, when we're talking about violence. And, and I think um, I was sharing with some colleagues about Edgewidge, Danticat's work, uh, Create Dangerously. And I said, there are a group of folks that I feel like are doing research dangerously. And uh, and what that means and why that's important. And I think, uh, uh, and you both are folks that are that fall sort of in that category for me. So we're going to jump right into our questions, writing from a critical perspective. But let's start with that, uh, that with that pesky term critical, because we know it takes on lots of different meanings. And so uh, we're not going to, you know, we're not debating the merits of any one meaning, but I do want to know what it means for you all. And um, how do you personally define or articulate what you think critical scholarship is? What does critical mean to you? And would you define your work as sort of op occupying uh, that position or some of your work as occupying that position? So uh, we will go with Romeo first. How about you? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I take critical part of my definition from Patricia Hill Collins, who reminds us, right, that for our research to be critical, we have to do something with it <laughs> outside of writing it. That right? Part. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it has to be a part of a broader social justice project. So I take that meaning. Um, right. There's critical schools of thought that really right, trace power and privilege and oppression dynamics through systems and structure. Right. For me, critical research has to have a structural analysis or a structural component mm -hmm. or something else. Yep. Um, I'm also a post-structuralist, okay. um, which informs part of the criti 
the critical part of me, because I think in critical theories a lot, um, it is often a top-down power analysis. Yep. Uh, but as a queer theorist, right, I, I think about power much more dynamic than that, right, yep. in terms of kind of situational. Um, so those are broadly how I think about it. Would I define my work that way? Um, you know, who knows, honestly, but I, <laughs> you know, because, um, and I say that because um, I try to have an emancipatory abolitionist mm. approach to my work, which yeah. some may or may not consider, consider struck, um, critical yeah. approaches. But what I mean by that is that, at least for my dissertation research, right, because I've written things that are less about this. Sure. But at least for my dissertation research, for me, I'm trying to dream the end of higher education as we know it. Yeah. And, you know, is that critical? I don't know. I think critical frameworks often are situated within systems and structures sure. in attempt to transform them, tweak them, but right. not abolish them. Right. Like they yeah. don't often they don't seek critical frameworks, don't seek to abolish right. systems. Typically, they seek to, you know, push them, expand them, contort them to be less hostile. Yeah. And so and definitely have research that does that, <laughs> right? And then right. kind of, right, right? Like, right. Definitely, I mean, right, like mm -hmm. I'm a student affairs practitioner, like, yeah, like I write, I'm working within systems. Um, but I hope my dissertation can do something not that. Like, I don't know, right. like something yeah. that's more like, let's dream something different. Yeah, well, I really resonate with that. And one of the things I, I really like about you, Romeo, is that we both kind of, a lot of our grounding is in sort of the Black feminist and womanist tradition. And I remember coming to a session where you were talking about queer of color critique and I could have leaped out of my chair when you're like, well, I'm just going to say that my introduction to this really is coming from Black feminist and, and womanist scholarship. And so I think that it does. It has you know, something to say about the doing of something. And it also makes me think about Dr. Cynthia Dillard, who said that how she thinks about sort of her work, and, and I was asking her on this point of sort of the critical nature, and has sort of been my measure is, uh, what do Black women think of my work? And for me, that has been such a profound uh, a way of thinking about it that breaks away from the Frankfurt School and like we know sort of the traditions of critical theory or critical legal studies. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but what is your work doing for the people? How is it perceived and how is it changing material conditions or not as another way of thinking about sort of critical work and does it stand up to that scrutiny of the people that it's supposed to be liberating? Um, the other thing I hear when you're saying is that uh, anarcho-Blackness, I don't know if you know a Black anarchy is what I hear. I don't know if you're familiar with that body of work, but yeah, it might yeah. Yeah, yeah, a place yeah. of, of connection for you. Uh, so yeah, thank you for that. What about you, Adrian? How do you sort of perceive that term? How do you uh, characterize your work? Do you, what, do, what does critical mean to you? You know, when I initially got that outreach from you and I was like, do I do critical scholarship? I really paused and I like asked myself, I was like, am I doing it? How am I doing it? And I was like, and, and, my partner, who's also an academic, she's like, of course you do critical work. And she's like, but you just don't frame it that way. And she's like, and that's what's beautiful about it is that like, you just do it. And I'm like, what? You know, I looked at her like, what? Like, really? Yeah. And then I was like, oh yeah, I was like, I guess you're right. I was like, because I really think about my work, you know, about like the people, like really about the people that I'm studying and trying to understand. And I think there's always a tension about the work that I do and why it's critical and why it's needed. Because it's like, you know, like I, I, I really challenge people who say like they're, they're giving voice to like unheard like populations. I, I, I find that really troubling. It's because often these communities, whether it's black or Latinx or queer communities are just been muted and we've been ignored. And I think that's like what's really frustrating. It's like, we're not giving voice. It's like, you know, just take your, your finger off the mute button. I was like, people have been saying this stuff for a minute. Like, you know, whatever it is, right? Whether it's you're, you're gang involved or you're a student parent or you're, you know, a queer activist on your campus or whatever it is, it's like, you know, if we look at the literature, whether it's public or empirical work, like we've been saying the same thing for a long time. Like we want voice, we wanna be treated like people, we wanna be humanized, we want our experiences validated. And, you know, we, and ultimately we wanna be treated with respect. Yeah. Right. And when we think about like or when I think about the work that I'm doing, it's like I really draw a lot of inspiration from like Chicana feminist epistemologies mm -hmm. to understand the relationships between power, knowledge, what is con what is considered knowledge yeah. and who 
who puts, you know, ascribes worth to that yep. knowledge. And I think like that's, you know, like I really, really appreciate Dolores Bernal uh, Delgado's work and like how she's given me a lot of tools and language to be able to like say, this is what I'm doing. Here's why I'm doing it. And here's what my lived experience says about my interactions and my empathy and understanding of X community. Yeah. Right. So I think I'm able to speak to those things. And like, you know, as Romeo w- was talking, it really made me think I was like, you know, I, as much as I'm looking at like micro level interactions, I'm also looking at the mechanisms at the micro, at the macro that's influencing all these micro level things that are happening yep. on the field. And what are the bigger things that are happening, whether it's in K through 12 or, or in a community college or graduate school or wherever, like, you know, that these, you know, what we consider like independent thoughts and actions are influenced by bigger forces. Yeah. And like, and how do we pause that? How do we reset those things? How do we challenge folks that just say, well, of course, we've always done it this way, because that's how it is. And it's like, whatever it is, right? right. Whether it's the silencing of, of black and brown bodies, or whether it's the punishing or surveillance of black and brown bodies, like, why is that okay? Yeah. Like, like where in your graduate program did you learn that was okay thing to do or whatever it is. Right. Right. Or like cultural spaces or elements. And, and one, one last piece to this is like, I also think about, you know, the, in the critical work that I do, I also think about legacy a lot. I think about the legacy of, you know, like I'm a big nerd and I think about like academic genealogy and I think about like, you know, what would Pat McDonough or Walter Allen say about what I'm doing. Right. Like, how can I honor, you know, what they've taught me and how do I push it forward to think about not just the work I'm doing, but also like how I inspire the students I work with to think about this work and not just talk to other academics, but how do I talk to like people that can change shit? Right. Right. Because it's like, I I don't want it just to be like, all right, you published in this journal. That's really cool. But it's like, how do I talk to policymakers? How do I talk to reporters? And how do I talk to others about like changing attitudes or changing perceptions about whatever populations I work with? Yeah, that's, that's really profound. And what it makes me think about was the, in a previous episode, we talked about sort of the importance of, but also the differences between community engaged research and community accountable research. And what does it mean to really engage in a scholarship of consequence, uh, whether, so I think, you know, to Romeo's point, like to literally, uh, what is to abolish higher education, right? To write it out of existence, its need out of existence, its presence out of existence. Um, or I think about your work, Adrian, and, and particularly when I think about your work on Latino men and gangs, a population that writ large society would say, that's not worthy of examination. Those are bad people, right? That's a, that's something they shouldn't be doing. Why are you studying that? And why does that matter? Because that material condition is absolutely influenced by power, by systems and structures, right? What, what it sort of has, you know, throughout history and across time. And so it's one of those things that is really interesting. And I think, and I will just say, I think for everyone listening, and I think this is a good lesson for me as well, is that I think the question of, is my work critical? And what is it doing? Is a question that I think we should always have. Like, I don't know that I would ever get comfortable in a place like I am that critical theorist. I am mm-hmm. doing sort of that critical work. I aspire to do that. And I aspire to Romeo's point to, to have it matter to the people, right? That it's supposed to be liberating to the people, including ourselves, right? Um, and so I just want to put that out there. I don't think that that's a, uh, I don't think that that's a, a um, a bad place to be in terms of just asking that question of ourselves as scholars, like, am I critical? Is this critical? Uh, when is it not? Um, Can I jump in really quick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think when you do work that's, we'll just say different, right, for simplicity, when you do work that's different, I think sometimes you experience pushback, right? You push back on like, like, why are you studying X, right? And, you know, for me, I think back to like, literally 10 years ago when I was wrapping up the first year of my PhD and people were like, why are you studying gang boys? You are criminalizing them. You are like contributing to deficit work. You are doing X, X, that, you know, like all this stuff to, to like exploit this population. And I was like, that's not what I'm doing. I was like, no, like they have something to say. I was like, 
but what is it that they're trying to say? And then once I really heard what they're trying to say, I was like, damn, like we as an education system really are just like screwing over so many kids. Yeah. Right. Like we're just yeah. doing them wrong. And well, isn't it a fascinating observation that the, the assumption that you would study those, right? I think it's a critique on, on the academy. I think it's a critique mm-hmm. on researchers. I think it's a critical knowledge production that the, the, uh, the assumption that you would study those groups was uh, sort of contributing to this. It's like, they're already criminalized, but perhaps then are there ways that the academy broadly entrenches sort of the system and structures that are already sort of running rampant? And I mean, I think even in my own profile with um, sex workers, which there's some- Right, overlap. let's take us there, because I was about to say, like, is this research you do around sex workers in higher education, same energy. And, say, and, and there's an overlap, right? Because some of them are criminalized. Uh, some work, direct uh, services, escorting, depends on the mm-hmm. language, but is criminalized. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there, the, I have often seen those critiques. I've had people say, why is this matter? Why is this important? And sort of these moral objections wrapped up in academic uh, rhetoric uh, when it's really something else altogether. But Well, yeah. when it's like this moral hysteria, right? Like, because even one of the things from the first, like, survey piece of the field people aren't writing about Korean trans students having sex <laughs> like no, you know no. you know what I mean like people are not writing about Korean trans students having sex which is so fun you know was funny for me right I was like oh like why do don't people want to name that queer and trans students come have on. sexual lives right come on um and TJ I think you're when I think I was like tweeting into the void like who is doing work around sex workers and higher education particularly queer and trans sex workers because so many of the students I worked alongside as an LGBTQ and gender program coordinator, mostly all of them having had engaged in some form of sex work. Yes. And the limitation, but I think the critical piece too, even as a practitioner, right, is around like what does intervention of services look like for, for populations that are criminalized, yep. including gang members, yep. right? Because actually higher education can learn a lot from gang members actually around what care protection, resistance, resilience, right? What all Community. Those things, right, like what all those things actually mean, yet we legalize and celebrate fraternities that are nothing short of things, right? So, right, so like at a certain oh, point- Oh, we're going there. We're going well, I mean, yes. at a certain point, right? We, like, but this is, the, this is why the critical stuff get the girls shook. Because you're like, <laughs> you're talking about gangs as if, as if fraternity and sorority life are not organized, institutionally supported gangs. Mm. Like, that's what they are. Like, mm-hmm. let's just call a thing a thing. But, like, what do we do with that in practice and research, I think, is the right. mess juiciness, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, and that's where, that's where, and I think that, for me, that's where the magic is, is then let's sort of intervene on that. And and how do we, and, and I like sort of the way you're framing this, Romeo, is this sort of, uh, inst- what institutions sanction uh, as okay in terms of, uh multiple different experiences but of course on this point you know we're talking about you know Adirond's work in terms of men and gangs and knowing that we have structures that mirror if not are identical to that and what does that mean um and all the potential the potential challenges that come from that so I want to talk let's lean into some of the challenges a bit more uh of doing our work this work whatever that means and so you know, there's been a renewed interest. I, I have to laugh. I wouldn't even say it's renewed. It's a new interest in critical race theory. And, and I don't even want to get into critical race theorists. Uh, but we also know that that terminology is a catch off for anything that means like equity, justice, and in some cases, like history, like <laughs> literally you're t- telling the truth about history. And, uh, and so I'm just saying, I'm wondering what challenge, have you all run into challenges in doing this work? We've already kind of stepped in this a little bit. And where have those challenges come from? How have you sort of navigated them? Um, and, and particularly, you know, from, and it could be, so, I mean, sure, like collecting and designing and all that, but also from the writing perspective, what have the challenges been about trying to make your work legible uh, in, in the field and whoever would like to jump in, you know, can? I think for me, I'm thinking about two or three challenges. One is getting the, over the hurdles of IRB and just trying to like talk to them and all the snaps and challenging and gently challenging and pushing back as an untenured faculty member Mm. about why the why this work is important especially my more recent work on former gang members right because a a person at irb told me 
that's not possible because once you join a gang, you can never, never leave. And I was like, because of course you know, they're the experts on, on gangs at IRB. It, yeah, and I'm like, I was like, what? So it's like, I had to take a deep breath. I had to like look for those pressure points in my hands. And I was like, well, I respectfully disagree. And I say this as an expert that's published so many papers and I've consulted with the National Gang Center and did it, you know, like all yeah. these things. But yeah. it's like, why do I have to flex credentials to do the work that I want to do, you know? And it's like, I understand that they're trying to like, you know, and, and I really in my heart, like want to protect the participants. I was like, I also know that there's a lot of people out there that were gang affiliated that have done a lot of amazing things since leaving the gang and they have a story to tell. Right. So it's like, how do I push back? And again, like I'm very person centered. Yeah. And I think about, you know, what is this interview protocol like gonna, gonna reveal from their stories without introducing trauma? Right. So it's like, that's I, I, okay. So one is getting over IRB two is the writing three and IRB data collection and the writing. Yeah. Right. And especially with the data collection on the weight of the stories that people share with you. Yeah. I think it's, it's a lot of uh decompressing and self-care is yeah. just as a way to be able to hear and really listen to people's stories because sometimes there's a lot of pain that's infused and violence from education onto these people in various ways, yeah. right? So whether we're talking about teachers and counselors or school resource officers in K through 12, or whether we're talking about academic advisors or faculty or other college students that see people and they're like, I don't like you because you scare me. And wh whatever that means, right? Whether yeah. that's a bald head with tattoos or whether whatever, however yeah. you carry yourself, right? People are yeah. gonna be like, that's different. That's ugly. That's not normal. Right. So go get away from me. Um, and then the third piece about writing, I think it's, oof, you know, when you're doing interdisciplinary work or you're pushing to do interdisciplinary work, you have different camps looking at your work and asking for different things and pushing you to sometimes try to contradict yourself. Right. Yeah. If, if this group of scholars or these social sciences are telling you this, and then you have higher ed scholars telling you this other thing and they start battling out in the paper. It's like, what is the role and the support of the editor to see like the vision of your paper right. from initial submission to right. acceptance? Yeah. And for me, and one last quick thought, like I, I joke with my, my doc students and I'm like, this paper took four years. This paper took three years. This paper took five years. Right. And it's yeah. like, it's, Maybe I wasn't as articulate about what I was trying to say, but it's like, I knew the story was there. Yeah. It just had to find, really, really had to find the right home. And yeah. but sometimes I was like, you know, after you do a third or fourth review with your journal and then they reject you, you're just like, you just want yeah. to scream into a yeah. pillow because it's like, it was so freaking close. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that they, I think sometimes critical work gets held hostage in the publication process for a number of different reasons. And, and I think, and I think, and honestly, while we may, maybe all see ourselves situated in education in some way, the work, I think critical work, you have to go outside of education for the literature, for the perspective, for the frameworks. But then when you're trying to bring it back in, it makes it difficult. And also I think there's some ter there's some territory issues in, in particular schools of thought, particularly when you're trying to bring ideas together that make it difficult. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, Romeo, in some of your work, uh, I think about the pieces when you are trying to make meaning of the current state of things and had, had you, did you all find challenges in doing that work or, or what anticipated challenges as you figure out how to make this uh, work um, uh, published, legible uh, in the writing process? What has been your experience on this? Yeah, you know, I, <laughs> you know, some of the feedback is often like, don't you think you're being too harsh or critical of, of these scholars and researchers? Um, because this showed up even in my master's capstone, which I want to talk about because mm -hmm. I was reading, and you're so right, like, I don't even read in our field. Like, I like 99% of what I read is outside of our field, um, because reading stuff in our field is so crushing, to put it mildly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was a master's student, I started reading Afro-pessimism in conjunction with native queer and feminist theories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so it, so my master's capstone is um, a reflection of like a messy thought process. Um, mm-hmm. But I was trying to bring to bear Afro-pessimist, native feminist, queer theories, and trans best practices mm-hmm, and, and, mm-hmm. and and higher like into conversation. Yeah. And I and and I still have scathing critiques of those trans research that's been published about trans students in higher education. Now I've said now I know all those people, so I've said it to them, right? Which is mm-hmm. I think part of the funny piece when I was told, don't be too harsh, or would you say this mm-hmm. if they were sitting across from you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not fake. I have said it. Like I don't <laughs> right. Like I don't <laughs> like I don't. But you know, but my master's this capstone was I, I describe it as painful mm. because you know taking an afro-pessimist stance diversity equity humanity are felt projects out of the gate right like out of the gate those are felt projects like they just don't right like you know black people cannot be viewed as human we are not viewed as human we are viewed as property to this day um that's why our death is spectated on currently yeah. now via social media videos and I think the faculty couldn't wrap their head around that mm. because they're bumped up against some of their own research. It, it bumps up against critical race theory. It bumps you know? up against multiculturalism. You know? It bumps up, right, right, right. Yeah. And so instead of my faculty saying like, Romeo, we can't wrap our head around the questions you're asking and mm. trying to answer, it became, this doesn't make sense, mm. right? It became an intelligibility issue which I think is just true across the board when you attempt to bring in new frameworks and ways of understanding and being into our field, right? It's, yeah. you know, if you track the way Z introduced critical trans politics into higher education scholarship and her earlier pieces, half of her manuscript is just detailing what critical trans politics is. Mm. And we lose words, right? We like, our research actually doesn't have the space to breathe because we Say have that. to write Say that. Because we have to write pages and pages outlining the theoretical frameworks we're using to make it intelligible to our field. Um, so I'm a part of some projects now because we're getting ready to try to, you know, I would say we're trying to stage an entry into uh, of career of color critique into higher education scholarship. But one thing we're trying to do is save us all the page space by putting it in, in two manuscripts, right? We're right. like, <laughs> here, right, like, here are the two manuscripts, right? Because yeah. it's not cool. Um, and then I think also, and this is some of my own challenges, right? Because it's an ongoing process. How do we write about people's experience without, well, we do, without framing people as a problem? Because they never are. It's the systems and structures. And the deficit language or framings can just jump out, right? Like, if you're not careful and attentive and, right, think about the switch from criminals to criminalized. Like that took me like six months to really internalize, right? Because even though I don't have a problem with the word criminal, because you know I mean, I was raised by criminals. Like those are my Mm. people, right? Right. Those are my people who raised me. We're criminals, okay, thieves, gang members, like all that. That's who we are. We're also churchgoers, girl, it's all there. Mm -hmm. Um, But right, criminalized speaks to a system and structure and a kind of um, selective enforcement of laws and policies, right? Right, and so I think part. that's for, and oh, and this is the last piece I think is so important. How do we not treat marginalized people as pacti- passive victims of their marginalization? Because one of the things we discover, we name, I think in the second piece around frameworks and the state of research is queer and trans students are often framed as having no agency in campus climate sur- surveys, right? Like, yeah. Um, and Invisible No More, uh, Police Violence Against Black Women and Other Women of Color does this really well where there's like these experiences of police violence, but um, she, end, and I'm forgetting her name, but she ends every chapter with resistance, the way that mm. women of color and community organizations have resisted that state violence. And I read that. Yep. And I was like, oh, that's game changing, right? Like yeah. that's, that's, how do we get that? Um, and TJ, I think once again, like to get back to this piece that, you and Brittany wrote around the difference between activism and resistance was helpful language for me around Black trans students because it's not activism, 
<laughs> it's right. It's, it's not. Actually, it's actually not that, right? It's just like, I have to survive here. And to get from class A to class B, I have to resist so many logics just to get to, just to walk across the campus. To breathe, to breathe. Yeah, so yeah, those are the things that kind of, yeah. So yeah, so I mean, the challenges are wild too because even critical scholars don't like me at times because, <laughs> because as what I think about as a, I don't have an investment in inclusion and diversity discourses. Right. Um, and I think we should actually be questioning why we want to be included in such violent systems. Yep. Um, but that comes, at least for me, emerged out of an Afro-pessimist and right. native epistemology place, at least for right. me, right, is where right. that, that kind of question came from. Right. Well, I mean, and I think, but no better experience as, as folks who either ascribe to or identify as being in a, a critical space or writing from a critical perspective, researching from a critical perspective is to be pushed, is to disrupt, is to remain open to the possibility that as much as we think we know it, that we don't and that we've gotten it wrong in some way. And so I really like the piece that you say, writing from a critical perspective is not only about not writing from sort of deficit perspectives, um, but that is these sort of communities or these these particular sort of experiences or topics is something's just always happening to folks and, and they don't uh, have a say in it. And so I think about Bell Hook's work where she talks about the margins as a space of radical resistance and radical sort of openness. And a lot of that animated my own work to not then say that, uh, and it kind of goes back to Adrian's point that, you know, that, oh, we need to be giving these folks voice. No, you can just pass the mic, truly, right? <laughs> they have voice, uh, what, what, you know, or to Adrian, I think you said, this is lift your finger off the mute button. And so, and, and I think that takes what things we've already talked about, having a vision beyond the current systems and structures, um, being community accountable, right? And not uh, relying on these sort of uh, folks' experiences and stories um, as a way to, you know, move our own sort of profile forward, but but truly to be invested in liberation. And um, and that is something that I am constantly sort of wrestling with in, in sort of my own work. And, and I definitely think it's a challenge, especially with journals, to, the, to, to your point, Romeo, it is wild when I've had to, dis I've had to spend space on the page and in response letters saying why I use the term fat in my work of fat people on campus like literally spend like considerable time. Right, and so, yeah. so much of this work, I don't know if teaching is the right word, but trying to disarm, you know, these prevalent misconceptions of what it is we actually are trying to do. Like, and so imagine me as a fat, you know, a fat study scholar having to explain to people why I'm using the term fat, right? Because, and, and, and how much that maybe drains from us to be in those processes and spaces. And so I think so much about writing from a critical perspective to Adrian's point is figuring out how to stay in it, how to be well, right? I think, um, I think wellness, particularly for minoritized folks is radical. And there are days when I'm like, I'm not doing this, right? And so I think that allows me sort of to show up. But on that point, I want to talk about uh, what keeps you going in your work, right? And I know we've kind of touched on it, but I'm pulling from uh, Bettina Love's language of a North Star. So uh, Bettina Love wrote abolitionist, uh, more than we want to do more than survive abolitionist teaching in the pursuit of educational freedom. Uh, shout out to Dr. Love. And so she wrote in her text, Polaris is often called the North Star. It's one of the brightest stars in the sky. Even when a full moon masks the starry skies, the North Star can still be seen. It never changes position and always points north. For enslaved folks fleeing bondage, the North Star marked the way to freedom. Abolitionists used the North Star to guide escaping enslaved folks north to places like Rochester, New York, where Dr. Love is from. It was a constant reminder to freedom dream. And so... Dr. Love suggests that we each need a North Star in our work. And I think that's true for folks who are doing work that we're doing. And of course, she talks about it within the context of abolitionist teaching, but I think that assertion is important for all of us. So I'm wondering, to use that language, or borrow from that language, what is your North Star? Uh, what keeps you going as you write uh, to and through the challenges of your work? Uh, what about you, Adrian? You know, I, I think that's a really, really good question. And... Oh. Things that I've been doing recently and thinking about that is, I guess, my hope and desire that educators in K through 12 see gang youth at, for what they are, children, mm. right? And it's like, because 
I, as I've talked to educators, as I've interacted with people, it's like, oh, that person's in a gang. Thug, street terrorist, like, you know, all these images come, are placed on these young people who are literally just trying to find a space to be validated and loved and supported, right? So you don't just join a gang because it's Tuesday. You join a gang because there's been this culmination of marginalization in all these different spaces. So, you know, one of the biggest things that I want is for educators, and I hope, I truly hope for, is for educators for, to find other ways to engage, authentically engage and support and help these kids leave gangs, right? So they don't end up in the adult, the, the juvenile or the adult justice system. Because it's like, why are we so comfortable, like, wasting people's lives, right? Locking them up, spending $100,000 a year to keep a little boy or a little girl of color in a cell to control them, to keep them away from others because they're dangerous or spend, you know, $50,000, $60,000 a year to imprison them to keep them, you know, away from everyone. I was like, imagine if we would have spent $5,000 a year on an intervention per kid when they were little, yeah. right? When they were itty bitty, yeah. when they were 13 and they just needed someone to talk to or to give them food because they're literally hungry or to give them real safety and not a school resource officer body slamming them, mm. right? Like how do we do those things in a preventative way so then that way kids don't see gang as the only and safest option for protection in their spaces. Yeah. And, and it's hard. It's hard to do this work. And, you know, like recently someone told me that uh, this man's in his mid fifties and he told me that a, a, a school leader said he was a menace to the learning environment. And I couldn't imagine saying that to like a 16 year old little boy, right? Yeah. Cause at 16, you still have a baby face. Yeah. Like you, you know, even if you are big or, you know, whatever, like tall or, you know, you still have a baby face. And to say that to a kid at 16, yeah. it's like, where in, again, in the pedagogy, did it say that's the right thing to do? Right. Right. To yeah. like kill a kid's spirit or to make them so angry at like that they're so angry that they have to do these things or they feel that they have to do these things because the structural forces that like guide youth to like these spaces that are, that are, or that are dark or that, you know, again, you know, are, are full of trauma, but it's like, what can we do differently? And I guess the optimist in me hopes that we can transform things in K through 12 and in higher ed to again, treat people like people yeah. and to like hear their trauma and find solutions for their trauma, right. right? Because it's like, you know, people are dealing with a lot. Yeah. And and minoritized people in urban spaces or in isolated spaces, they deal with a shit ton of things with limited resources. So right. how do we fix that? Yeah. Like, why do we have to wait till people are so like freaking broken, like emotionally yeah. lose faith and lose faith in all these systems to be like, here, I'm gonna help you figure your shit out. Yeah. It's like, why do we do that? Like, yeah. why can't we be better? Well, what's, what's interesting in what you're saying, and, and I'm sitting here thinking, because I always in, in the space of what am I going to have to sort of combat in my work? And I could see someone saying, well, well, based on the work that you do, that's all the more reason why we need more police, right? Uh, well, that's all the more reason why, because look at, you know, sort of all these young folks and to which, you know, my response would, would often be, and I think about it in our own, you know, in my own communities and Black communities where I grew up, it's like, you know, if we want to figure out ways to decrease what people perceive to be sort of crime and violence and all of that, people need, uh, I think about Kiese Lehman. And I remember one time, I don't know if I was watching something or reading something, I try to like inhale everything that, uh, that he writes, but I think he asked sort of what was his hope for Black people. And one of the things he said was good love, uh, second chances and healthy choices. And I thought that that was so profound. And so I'm like, when people have safe and secure housing, when people have food to eat, when people have like, then that is when, so then people will say, oh, well, you know, look at all these, you know, neighborhoods where minoritized people don't exist. There's no crime. It's because they have all those things, not because the police are making those neighborhoods safe. And so um, when I think about, um, 
you know, youth in gangs, for example, and thinking about your work, I think, right, that should be the investment. And even when I think about historically, like the Black Panther Party, there's often been groups of communities that are considered gangs, even when they're not, right? So even that is sort of a politicized term. What do we mean? Black Lives Matter to some folks is a gang, <laughs> right? And, and so how do we think through that? But it's something that's sort of coming up for me. And so I, I appreciate sort of your articulating of, of what your North Star is and how it's allowing you to kind of stay in it. What about you? Romeo, what is what is your North Star? Do you have one, I guess? Yeah, yeah um, um, it's my deep love for Black queer and trans people. It's like the only thing that holds me. <laughs> and when I say the only thing, I mean like I'm ready to sell my soul to the highest bidder at the drop of a hat someday. <laughs> so like, I'm like, who wants to give me six figures to do acute diversity training? Like, yeah. because it... Um, and a lot of what holds me used to be a lot of rage and anger, but that wasn't sustainable. So like, yeah, you know, that's a, deep, a deep love and commitment to Black queer and trans people is what does it because in, in like it, the work being of use to those people, um, because um, I feel very precarious in higher education as a researcher, as a practitioner, that's why I love student affairs. Mm -hmm. um, and my hope is that the critical scholarship, the post-structural scholarship finds the person it needs mm. so they can be transformed. Like, you know, I, when I got a hold of Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider, like so many things became possible that I thought were like impossible. Yeah. And you know, I'll go to Audrey Lord, so I don't know if I ever get there. But like, <laughs> I hope that usefulness, like, like, you know, I don't know. She thought like I would pick up Sister Outsider one day and it would crack open my politics the way it did mm. and create the possibilities it did. Mm -mm. So I, I hope even if it doesn't resonate now, or if the writing now seems weird and abstract and like you know, not directly related to student affairs praxis. Yeah. That when the person who finds it, it needs it, I hope it pushes us forward some way. Um, so yeah, that's what holds me. That is so beautiful and, and so profound. Um, so, you know, this North Star of, that, of who it's for. Uh, there was, I'm going to mess up this quote, but Edwidge Danticat wrote in Creative Dangerously. She was, or was basically asking that we write understanding the importance so much so that we write in a way that one day someone may miss, may risk their life to read it. And that if we're not writing in that way, if we're not writing toward that end, um, then what are we doing it for? And so it, that is something that I often have kind of sort of held. And like I said, I'm pretty sure I messed it up, but I know that that was sort of what, what was coming up for me. And, um, and just thinking about the ways that a lot of these folks are often, quote unquote, ahead of their time, right? And, and, what does, and what does that mean? I was just looking at, I'm doing some work on the erotic, big surprise to folks who've read <laughs> my work, but I was thinking the uses of the erotic by Audre Lorde is something that mm. I, I have, I'm, I'm currently uh, working with. And then also I think about uh, Bell Hooks talk about Eros and the erotic and teaching the transgress, right, of all places and, and really sort of deconstructing, uh, right, how it's been contemporarily understood, but that they were writing for me and did not know it. Um, and so I appreciate that, that frame that is, yeah. And I think too, this is why working outside of academic journals is critical. Like, you know, I don't know, you know, I, one of the things that, you know, people are often, I don't know if shocked is, they're intrigued about my academic publications. <laughs> like, <laughs> but like before I was even a doc student, um, but for me, like what I felt was a sense of urgency to intervene into LGBTQ studies and higher education yeah. quick, fast, and in a hurry, but all because it was bad and I hated reading it, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. But two was, when I think about the things that have been most impactful for me, they have not been with an academic journal. Mm. And I think that's the other piece of it as we navigate what it means to be on a particular form of a tenure track at an R1 or you yeah. know, other places. And, you know, I know this is <laughs> a limited series, but I think I would love to hear more about that from folks. Like yeah. that's one of the things, that's one of the things I think about, right? Because I've had great mentorship and writing partners. That's the other part of yeah. what holds and keeps in the North Star is like, 
having writing partners is the only way I can get it done. Yeah, um, that's you know, real. This piece that was this piece that was just accepted was rejected from two journals, and I was like, I hate it here. <laughs> like, you know, I was like, I was like, I hate it here. Like, I'm not, yeah. if I get one more rejection, I'm never writing again. <laughs> you yeah. know, but you know, Antonio Duran and Alexi Lang were like, girl, we're going to submit it to the next place and the next place and the next place yeah. because this work will matter. And so, yeah, I just yeah. wanted to add that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really, one of, the, one of my pieces that seems to be most impactful to folks was actually in About Campus. And someone, I wrote a piece called About Fat Campus and I have received numerous emails, reach outs, one, one individual like cited in their dissertation like 18 times. Another student was like, this literally was the premise of my dissertation work. It helped me sort of find my question. Um, and not to brag on myself, but just the point being that, that that's a practitioner facing journal and that is going to inform people's scholarship, right? And their their interests. I think about blogs and we, we talked in a previous episode with Dr. Charles Davis and his, um, uh, I think it's, scholars for black lives collective and like as a space that he is you know and, and folks are creating and curating outside of these traditional spaces and and while we know that we are cogs right in the system when we're when we're these sort of we the, in these academic spaces and you know we have to have our work there it doesn't have to live there it doesn't have to stay there um shout out to dr steve mobley who's another person who i who i admire and whose work doesn't live in the walls of a journal when i think about the profile of of his work and the way it's been used in meaningful ways in hbcu context to advance like that is another sort of space and so Romeo, that's so well taken like we have got to figure out ways to get our work out uh to get it in in, in front of folks and to not limit ourselves just to uh, what is legitimized, quote unquote, legitimizes places to, to sort of publish our work. Yeah. One little small point to that. And yeah. Something that, that we need to think about too is being accessible with our writing. Because I think sometimes when we're writing, like I could be writing something to you, TJ, mm-hmm. right? Or I could be writing something to you, Romeo, where I'm like, I hope Romeo reads this and learns da 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 da. Right. But if we continue to like write in ways that are inaccessible for others, for someone that doesn't have a PhD or an EDD or whatever, doesn't know what the hell you're talking about, then what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that's something I, I really try to instill with my writing partners is like, write the way you talk, be authentic to your voice and don't get so caught up in writing with so much jargon that I'm like, what, what the hell does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean that you're writing? And like, it's just, so I think, and you know, so I totally applaud people putting stuff on blogs or in, about and practitioner uh, focused spaces. I think that's really, really important. And then just whatever we want to articulate to make sure that if someone, someone not in the, in, not in the higher ed space can read mm-hmm. it, can pick it up, read it and be like, oh, okay, that's it. Yep. That's what I wanted to know. Okay, boom. Now I know what to do with it. Wait a minute. Listen, one thing about me, I'm going to cite somebody's tweets. Some of my favorite places to pull scholarship and epistemology is are from people's thread education, uh, as I like to call it. And so um, I think that point's well taken. I, I was joking with somebody. I had got some feedback on a, uh, a monograph, chapter, book chapter I'm working on. And someone was like, mm, this is this work is too, or some of the words we were using were too sort of complex. And I got offended. I'm like, what? I try, you know, I try to write very um, clearly and straightforward and and so, but I, I, but I, but then when they pointed to some of what we were writing was finding that some of that was slipping in. And of course we know there are, you know, contexts where that may be required, but I think the point's well taken. Who is it really for, right? That's the question. And, um, and who does it need to, to who, who needs to pick it up and be able to understand it and make it legible in that sort of piece. And, and even in the pre, and to that also point, the publication timeline is a whole other challenge to critical work because uh, in a previous episode, Dr. Dr. Charles Davis again was saying like some of the folks who could use it can't wait two and three years for it to come out, um, you know, whatever the context may be. And that's something we really got to figure out as well, because otherwise we're just kind of, you know, spinning our wheels, but Man, I could talk with y'all all day and twice on Sunday, um, and but we are nearing the end of our time. But I do have a lightning round, so hopefully your brains are sufficiently warmed up. These are seven questions 
it's supposed to be in under 90 seconds. I don't think I've met that yet on the podcast, but we, we do our best. There's two of you, so you get a little more time. Uh, and they're all somewhat related to writing, just to give an opportunity for the audience to learn more about you. Um, and so you both will answer. So we'll just go back and forth and you can uh, jump in and uh, we'll go from there. So y'all feel ready? Y'all feel ready for this? Okay, I'm getting thumbs up. So the first question. If you so you wrote something super dope when you were invited to keynote at a conference, and ideally they paid you a lot of money. What would your entrance music be as you walk to the podium? What song? Knock if you buck. Prime out. Come on now. <laughs> uh, I really like Jay Z's "My First Song." dope oh my god so first of all y'all are two of my favorite songs that i've had on the show so far so yes okay so your favorite place to read and or write coffee shop coffee shop right sitting on my floor while i'm back against my couch i love that okay so let's say when you're not writing finish this sentence when i'm not writing i love to when i'm not writing i love to turn up oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm the party girl got to got to Love to watch TV with my kids. Oh, I love the, the littles. Okay, so this can be an academic or not an academic person, but who is either your favorite author or one of your favorite authors? Because I know that's a hard question at the moment. I refuse to answer this question. <laughs> Audrey Lord, of course. <laughs> okay. That's mother, that's mother. Okay, all right. All right, this is, this is important. Uh, someone who's really important, I guess, says that you can assign required reading to all of higher education and we are all required to read it. What do you assign to us? I really love Dolores Delgado Bernal's work from like 96 to 2001. I think those were like some of her like hottest, dopest pieces that she threw out there that like really pushed you to think all these different ways. And I feel like those are like key critical pieces that the scholars need to read when thinking about methodology, thinking about positionality, thinking about cultural intuition, the, oh my gosh, she wrote this piece about like the apartheid of knowledge. Oh, wow. Like it was just, yeah. So uh, I'm fanboying over here. Okay. Wow. I'm going to give you four things. Uh, okay. <laughs> Black Feminist Thought, Patricia Collins. Okay. Uh, Sister Outsider, Audre Lord, On Blackness and Being in the Way, Christina Sharp. Um, and then on being included, Sarah Ahmed, um, for the Art University Studies Girls. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Love it. Love it. Love all of it. Okay. Something that you have written that you're really proud of. I can go get um, So this forthcoming piece, uh, it's called um, a, a White and Rainbow, the Invisibility of Race and Racism and LGBTQ Scholarship is an idea I had since I was a master's student. Wow. And it, and it is the work I want to do as a scholar like it is right now at this moment like a culmination of a lot of things I think and 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 I think it's going to be useful actually too which also makes me really proud of it that's beautiful I'm setting a scholar alert as soon as we get off of this podcast Adrian something um, you've written that you're proud of I'm really proud of this paper that I wrote with my colleague at UCLA Cecilia Rios Aguilar we wrote this piece called funds of gang knowledge looking at Latino boys in, in continuation schools and building off Luis Moll's work on front of knowledge and just like really showcasing the, the wealth information that these kids, that these little brown boys have to be able to like navigate super complex spaces and communities in, in, in their lives. And just like, and that teachers and others should see all this stuff as assets instead of deficits. And like, how do we do something positive with it? That's really dope. And my last question, and you're the first guest I've asked this to, you get to go back 10 years and tell your past self something important, either a quote or words to live by. What do you tell yourself? Wow, this is so My 10 year high school reunion is actually coming up. Um, but uh, I think I would tell myself like, girl, you're right. <laughs> or, or, and or like, you are gonna be okay. Cause girl, when I was 18, I did not think I was gonna be okay at all. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think those are the two things that, I mean, I tell myself that now shit. Like I'm like, yeah. girl, you gonna be okay. <laughs> I love that. So you were right and you gonna be okay. Adria, what do you tell yourself 10 years ago? You know, I think I would have told myself to give myself space to, to heal, mm. grace, 
and to continue to have crazy high expectations, mm -hmm. but heal and have grace. So then that way I don't collapse. Mm. So take, take care of yourself. Give yourself grace. Well, awesome. I appreciate you both deeply. This was a wonderful conversation. As I have said at the end of, of the episodes that I have invited folks that I admire and that I enjoy and that I deeply respect. And that is not a performance. That is 100% um, how I feel. So uh, I appreciate the time. Given some of your summer, right? We're coming out of the slowly out of the panopticon. And so I appreciate you making a little bit of time to to connect with with me on this project. And so uh, to all the uh, uh, folks listening, I hope that you were able to take something away from this rich conversation. And until next time, don't forget, get right or get left. <laughs>